Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. Our purpose on Journey to Success Radio is to interview and promote people who are making a positive difference in this world. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and speaker, helping people to live positively with and through the many and varied challenges of life. I've had rheumatoid arthritis from my jaw to my toes since the age of five. That's 45 years now, and in that time I've had four hips, four knees, and two shoulders replaced, which makes me sound like a spider, and I've been hospitalized about 40 times. I also stand about five foot one, hence the nickname Two Top. That's due to the heavy doses of the steroid prednisone that I had to take to fight my arthritis. Despite those physical challenges, I always answer amazing when asked how I'm doing. I tell people that 80% of the time it's true and the other 20% of the time it's to remind myself that it's true. You can find out more about me at my website. It's Tom, the number two, and tall, T-A-L-L dot com. My guest today is Will Bowen, one of my favorite guests of all time, one of my favorite books, the one I mention in all my talks, and someone I probably mention more than anyone else. He's the internationally best-selling author of A Complaint-Free World. The complaint-free movement he began in 2006 has positively impacted the lives of more than 10 million people worldwide. Will discovered that the most common experience of people who have attempted to go 21 consecutive days without complaining is an increased level of happiness. And in his new book, Happy This Year, Bowen explores the simple but important steps anyone can take to become a happier person. In fact, Happy This Year was selected by the Dale Carnegie Institute of Asia as a textbook for becoming a happier person. His follow-up book, Happy Stories, shares the lives and happiness habits of 50 of the happiest people alive today. He's been featured on every major television network, been seen on Oprah, The Today Show, hundreds of newspapers, magazines, and TV shows around the world. Welcome to the show today, Will. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. It's always good being with you. Um, you have evolved, it seems, over the last number of years, uh, positively. Uh, you started off with a complaint-free world, which, as you know and as I've said, is uh, something I just talk about in every talk. I live in Canada, and I think of when I think of complaining, I think of complaining to someone who lives in a third-world country, wondering how I would feel complaining to them and what they would think of me complaining about that particular thing. And so, but now you've found that this, by being complaint-free, this leads to increased levels of happiness, and you've seemed to branched out or expanded and more concerned with happiness. Uh, so how to, has this shift come about from being complaint-free to more of a focus on becoming happier? Well, I think it was a natural and unexpected evolution, actually. Um, the most common comment people were giving me when I started this complaint-free concept in 2006 is that they were feeling happier as a result of trying to go 21 consecutive days without complaining, switching their complaint-free bracelet every time to <clears throat> excuse me, keep track. But people were like, well, I haven't made it 21 days, but I feel happier. And then I was actually 
speaking in China, and a very wealthy man there, a billionaire, and I were talking. This is a handsome young guy who's, uh, you know, got more money than most people <laughs> will ever see, most uh, cities will see. And yet he grabbed my arm and with tears in his eyes said, I'm not happy. Um, so I really started looking at this concept of happiness over the next uh, se- several years. I used my own life as research. I just sort of read every book I could get on happiness, tried a lot of things, and I think what I discovered was uh, uh, several blinding flashes of the obvious, and that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to do is to share with people. I think that we tend to look at things and think, wow, that's arcane or that's unusual, that must be good, when actually I think in most cases it's the very simple practical things that make the big difference in our lives. Exactly, and it all begins with our thinking, as Napoleon Hill says, thoughts are things, and so when you start with the proper thinking, it's been estimated we have thirty to 60,000 thoughts a day, and so if we don't purposely direct those thoughts towards what will make us happy, and we let the media and our lives fill us with the negativity, uh, it's hard to be complaint-free or happy unless you do direct those thoughts. Now, you say that happiness and fitness are similar. Now, that could be good news for some people and bad news for others. I go to the gym regularly. I believe in fitness, but I don't always enjoy fitness. I go when I'm tired. I go when I'm sore. I go when I don't feel like it, uh, but I know when I experience the benefits of fitness. And so how are happiness and fitness similar? Well, if you look at fitness, because my, my fitness level has changed many times over my lifetime. I was the fat kid in school when I went for the physical fitness merit badge. When I was 12 years old, I couldn't do one push-up, um, whereas now I'm 54 years old. I took up uh, weightlifting seriously. I can do 60 or 70 push-ups. And, um, so my fitness level has changed, and people want to complicate fitness. <laughs> um, and yet if you look at any fitness exercise book, it's going to say eat less or eat well, and exercise more. I mean, it's really that simple. It's what you do with your body and what you put into your body determines the shape of your body. Well, what you do with your mind and what you put into your mind determines your level of mental fitness, which I call happiness. Because to the extent that you are mentally fit, feeling good, able to lift heavy loads in your mind or or withstand difficult challenges, you are a happier person. So, what we've got to do is to begin to watch what we put into our minds. And that means, um, first of all, I don't watch the news. I occasionally listen to NPR to catch up, but rarely. Um, I don't listen to news. I I don't recommend it. Um, Most news is there to engage and enrage us. Um, So we've got to be careful. Uh, Even even negative breakup songs, I find, can be just – uh, make us sad, and, and, and down in violent movies. I know I sound like an extremist, and, and a couple of years ago, I would have thought I was an extremist. But everything that we put into our mind leaves an energetic vibration, um, and either, as you said, enhances or limits our thinking. And so then that second part is we need to take control of our minds Because the number one thing that people told me who are happy people that I've interviewed is they describe themselves as being happy. Nobody who is happy describes themselves as being unhappy. And so one of the things we have to do is to take responsibility for our own minds, decide that we not are going to be happy, but that we are happy, 
and then begin to use our minds to focus on the things that are good rather than the things that are not. What I like to say we focus on our blessings rather than our lackings. I love it. And you have to purposely do this. And uh, maybe I'll have you speak to my wife after. She calls me the word police. And uh, she's learned that, you know, there are some shows before we go to bed, between 9 and 11 when we're watching TV, we'll only watch comedy or sports, and we, we won't watch any of violent we don't need to take any of that in we want to be laughing and if there's any word things that can be said in a more positive way i'm the word police there and so all these things do take habits they're like habits just like fitness is a habit you have to purposely shift your mind to the right thoughts the right words and those between thoughts and words and the actions will follow from there, but you have to be very diligent about it because the world is very uh, easily going to engage you in its negativity if you don't purposely well, and, seek and, and it out. Thomas, and so, you know, is that why it's uh, so difficult for people to... Ex- oh. Well, yeah, and I'd Go like ahead. to actually speak to that. The reason that uh, it's so difficult is that um, the media... Even corporations, and I'm, you know, I'm part of the media. If you think about it, we're doing a radio show, so we're part of the media. But for the most part, the media has found <laughs> that by scaring us, or by frightening us, or making us feel insecure, that we will keep coming back to them to watch. They then can turn those watchers into revenue. Um, when you look at the five reasons people complain, one of the reasons people complain is power, and so our our economy and our media complain on a very large level. It's interesting when we went through the economic downturn that began six years ago. People were freaking out and screaming and crying and everything. But you know what? Six months before that, they were still complaining about the economy and everything else. It's, it's just a way of getting people to feel a little uncomfortable so you can then garner their attention through negativity and complaining. But as a result, they come, but they don't come as happy people. And so in my, my opinion, we need to extricate ourselves. You know, Jesus Christ said you, you want to be in the world and not of the world. And um, I think that that's true in, in any religion, that we, we want to be with people, we want to be with human beings, but we don't necessarily want to get caught up in all the drama and the angst and the discord and the, the this and the that. Exactly. And if you focus on... The seeking out the good in life, most people and so many things are good. And it isn't hard if you purposely direct your thoughts to people who are kind and nice and done good things or great things or interesting things. Um, but you have to be diligent about it. If you just sit, jump in your car and turn on the first radio station comes around, you are not purposely directing your thoughts and your energy. And so it becomes kind of something to be diligent about. But once you do get into the practice of it, it becomes your life. If you become happier, automatically happier through some habits, isn't that worth pursuing? God, I'm sure, would honor that. And so uh, uh, it is an honorable pursuit for sure. So now why is it so difficult for people to expand their happiness level? Because uh, it does seem hard for people to go from unhappy to happy or even to raise their happiness level if they are already happy. 
Well, you know, that's, that is a really complex question, and I think one that we are on the verge of unraveling in many ways because science, uh, sociology, uh, theology, everything is trying to, to sort of unravel the mystery of happiness right now. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that we come here in the United States especially, we're descendants primarily of the Protestant ethic, and H.L. Lincoln said that a Protestant is someone who lives in constant fear that somewhere somebody might be happy. And so happiness is looked as being frivolous, it's looked as being naive, it's looked as being um, out of touch. So there is this, there's something weird and wrong with being happy. Um, I think that's part of it. I also think that um, Gay Hendricks talks about what he calls the upper limit, and that is that when things start going too well, we have this thermostat that tries to bring us down, this happiness setting. And it's, it's interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, you are as happy as you believe yourself to be. And that's why I created an app to go with my book, Happy This Year. The app is called Happy Stat, H-A-P-P-Y-S-T-A-T. And it asks you to set a weekly goal. How happy do you want to be this week? And you set your goal. And then it asks you three times a day to check in. And it's just about being mindful. There's nothing more important. If your goal is to be happy and you ask yourself, am I happy, and start looking for reasons to be happy, you simply will be happier. So it's, it's difficult because we, we're not mindful of being happy. We have a uh, negative bent towards happiness, a distrust towards happiness. And we also think that, um, that, that happiness is, is uh, uh, something that, should be ephemeral rather than ongoing. We also, I'll throw one other thing in there, Tom, and that is that we don't even understand what happiness is. People think that happiness is this uh, uh, bursting with glee, bouncing off the walls thing all the time. Happiness is, is contentment. Happiness is feeling good about yourself, who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. And you don't need a, a grand platform or a lot of money or anything like that to have that happen. It's a, it's a decision that you make, and, and you are a good example of somebody who makes a decision not to allow uh, circumstance to, to get you down. I love that point, and uh, uh, one of my favorite heroes, as well as Margaret Thatcher, and who else uh, that I read recently had him as a hero, the Apostle Paul, and he talked about being content in all circumstances, and if you can be content in jail while chained to a bunch of Roman soldiers, and when you read his letters, it seems fairly apparent he was very happy, uh, Mm. it is contentment, and contentment can be without uh, all the money, without all the prestige, without all the this and that. And I've known grandparents, uh, some of my grandparents, I've known many elderly people who are just really happy because they're content with their state in life, uh, whatever the state may be. And that is a peaceful kind of happiness as opposed to the bouncing off the wall type of happiness. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is ephemeral. It doesn't last. The bouncing off the wall type. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Now, how can happiness now uh, move this into the workplace? How can happiness improve the workplace? Because I know this is the source of a lot of unhappiness or stress for people. And yet, if you can increase the happiness ratio or levels at a workplace where people 
care for each other, love each other, and enjoy spending time with each other and being around each other and helping each other, uh, this can really transform a business and people, can't it? Yeah, it really can. And um, I think that managers need to begin to screen for happiness. They need to at least make themselves aware of a person's happiness level as opposed to their competency uh, level because you can <clears throat> train someone to be competent at almost anything, but what you want is you want to release somebody into your environment who's going to raise the overall... You, you talk about raising morale. Well, in many cases, the reason morale is low is you've hired a bunch of disgruntled people and treated them poorly, and you can't understand why morale is is poor. Let's begin to screen for happiness. Let's let's look and see in what ways is this person a ha- person a contented, resilient uh, person. I th- I think that's very important in the workplace. The other thing too is that you know 50 years ago you'd walk into a business. Well, let's go back further than that. Well, well, let's say 50 years ago, the 1960s, and you'd walk in and if you, there was a lot of laughter and everything like that, you'd say to yourself, "Boy, everybody here is happy." Something must be wrong. And nowadays, if you go to Google or Apple or something like that, where everybody's throwing paper airplanes and wearing T-shirts and eat pizza and, you know, uh, have they, uh, I was reading was that I think Google has all this, you know, constant, like, food. You want food? It's delivered, free. You don't worry about it, you know, because they want people to be happy and to say they're doing their job. So nowadays you walk in and you say, everybody's happy. Something must be right. And so I'm glad to see that that shift in our culture. Um, Dan Gilbert, the Harvard professor and author of Stumbling on Happiness, said that we we have this mistaken idea that people need to be stressed to do their best work. They don't need to be stressed. That's akin to fear. What they need is to be happy and challenged. Challenged. They need to be always going a little bit beyond their current parameters to do a little bit better uh, or something new, and they need to be happy. And so... We need to look for ways to encourage happiness in the workplace. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day. She's the uh, morning anchor on um, Channel 4 here in Kansas City, Fox 4. And for 10 years now, they have had the number one morning show in Kansas City. It is not a glitzy show. They're adequate with their backdrops and everything else, but they're not super fancy but you can just tell that she and her cohorts love each other. They are happy to be together, and that comes across. And she has had so many people try and hire her away, and she said, well, that won't work. She said, because <clears throat> I'm happy because I'm working with these other coworkers. And she's actually at station say, well, we'll hire them too. And she said, well, just because we're happy working together doesn't mean we're happy working. we would be happy working with you. So I think a lot of times what we need to do is if we begin to encourage happiness, and that starts with us smiling, smiling and being happy ourselves, then our employees are happier. They smile at one another. The whole overall environment improves. They smile at customers, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm, I realize I'm really on a soapbox here, Tom, but there's, there's just such a dearth of evidence that it's important for employees and, and work environments to, to be happy. I love it. You just said a 
a very important word, evidence. I just recently, not recently, in the last, within the last year, read uh, Dr. Barbara Fredersen's book, Positivity, and Sean Aker's book, The Happiness Advantage, as well as a few others. And science is proving what Napoleon Hill talked about, positive mental attitude, positivity, positive psychology, really does help with happiness levels, regardless of your circumstances or state in life. And uh, Barbara Fredrickson, I think hers is like 3.1 positive impacts or uh, positive uh, communications to one that you need to flourish, and flourish is another word they use for happiness or positivity. And so uh, for all those left-brain managers and business people out there, uh, happiness is scientific, and it will prove itself in ROI, bottom line, profits, keeping employees longer, happier customers, and so it is definitely something to strive for as a company, as a corporate mission, uh, to have a happier workplace because of all the ancillary benefits that your business will generate from it. Absolutely, yeah. It's... And, and I think that people are afraid that if they start, you know, how do, how do you begin that? How do you go around and say, okay, we want to have, you know, this is going to be Wacky Tie Tuesday or something like that. I mean, those kinds of things aren't happy. Uh, my friend, when she was telling me about the, uh, uh, the other TV station that was trying to hire her in her morning show away, um, they don't allow people to put pictures of their children or their pets or anything in their cubicles. Cubicles are supposed to look neat. Well, by golly, who cares? I mean, again, you go and look at Google and, mm-hmm. and other places, and you know, people are hanging from the rafters if they want to. Let people do what people do. I, I used to work with a woman who, uh, when it came time for myself and my other managers to do our strategy planning, we would go to Starbucks at that point, and we would sit for hours and just plan, plan, plan off-site. Well, she felt if we were off-site, we weren't working. So we had to sit there, and it was just a silly little thing. I mean, we were doing exceptional work. We were very highly graded. But to her, she felt like she wasn't managing us if she wasn't looking at us. And you need to give people the freedom to do what it is that they feel guided to do, Check in with them regularly, see how they're doing, but more importantly, check in to see how you can help them in, in what they're doing, sometimes clarifying or, or, or suggesting. But otherwise, give them that challenge and let them do it. Mm. So uh, let's start with some uh, maybe some tips for managers on, as you are kind of alluding to, what they can do to elevate happiness at the office because the crazy tie thing doesn't work. Uh, uh, you know, some of these things that they come up with uh, because also you have the wide variety of ages in the workplace. Now you have the Generation uh, Y and you have traditionalists and boomers. and So you try and have something that might make someone happy in their 20s, but someone in their 50s is going to be like, gosh, that seems awfully annoying. And so what can managers do to elevate happiness, of course, we start with a smile. We be positive ourselves, look for the good in others, but lay it out for people so they can say, hey, well, I'm, I need three steps at least how to do this. Well, Tom, I've got to laugh a bit because you just laid out, you know, well, yeah, people know this. I know people know this, but you just identified the key most important and yet the most, it sounds like the most simple, but it's the most difficult thing, and that is, 
to be responsible for your own happiness. Uh, there's an old saying that managers typically get the employees they deserve. Um, if you can raise your own level of happiness, if you can begin to talk about positive outcomes rather than what are your meetings about? Um, are your meetings about talking about the problems that need to be taken care of, or are you talking about solutions that can come as a result of situations? In other words, you can look at something and you can say, we have this situation, it's a problem. Well, all of a sudden, it's got a big red light around it, problem. You know, it's like a spill on the floor, and they put a little thing, you know, walk around this or clean this up. Instead of looking at it and saying, okay, this is a situation, now what can we learn about ourselves and improve our overall practices, you know? So beginning to look for and appreciate the good even in the challenges and to begin to uh, context, contextualize things. People are going to pick up your energy and your vibration, and it's difficult when you first change. In my book, Happy Stories, I write about a construction worker who waved at everybody in a town for three days and nobody waved back. But ultimately, one person here, another person there waved back, and they finally ended up giving this guy the key to the city and made him an honorary citizen. We, it starts with us. We've got to begin to do that. So that, as I say, is step one. Step two, as I said, screen for happiness. Begin to encourage happiness. Begin to uh, um, reward happiness. And to that end, um, Begin your meetings with what's going well. I started that a while ago, and I can't tell you how powerful that is because everybody shows up with their issue, their challenge, their agenda item, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that they want the team to address or the manager to address or the resources to resolve or whatever. And instead, you can sit there and say, what's going well with? And this isn't just a chance to brag about your own department. Begin to brag about other people. Here's what I see you doing well. Here's what I see you doing well. Here's what I see you doing well. Again, you're raising that overall level of contentment. Then let's say you're going to handle issue A. You bring up issue A. Instead of saying, here's the problem, you know, 34 customers left, you say, what can we learn from this, and how can we be better and stronger in the future, and what do we see ourselves being in the future? So uh, those would be my, my suggestions. Number one, I love it. And I'm thinking, raise it yourself. Number two, look for and reward I'm thinking of a, three, what's going well. Hmm? I love it. I'm thinking of a particular manager and of a phrase that comes to mind, like some managers bring happiness to a room when they leave, and some when they arrive. And, uh, you know, you you really do. When you said that phrase, I wrote it down, managers typically get the employees they deserve uh, because you can have perfectly positive, happy, good people working for you. But uh, if you're the type of manager who makes people happy when you leave a room, you're going to bring them down to your level instead of them bringing you up to their level. And yeah. it's sad but true. And if you can just... Focus on becoming a manager who people enjoy seeing walk into a room as opposed to the stress level going up immediately upon you entering a room. Um, that will make the workplace a lot better. And so it starts with ourselves, you know, it starts with ourselves. And so everybody can be responsible for their own happiness level, but managers set the stage for the feeling in the room. And so you got to start with the management. Uh, now, how about this? Uh, the newest book, Happy Stories. You must have had some amazing stories of some 
really amazing people. And so can you share a few of those? Because I love those kind of stories. And I know from reading uh, your newsletter and some others that you've uh, you've been able to uh, include some really amazing people, right? Yeah, I have. And, Tom, it's really sweet of you to say that. We, as you know, were talking about including your story. It just turned out that it was so similar to another one that uh, it just didn't work. But um, the story of the construction worker is one that just always just really blows people away, as I mentioned. And it shows the power of one person uh, changing a community. Um, that is, that's a very, very popular story. Um, another story that I love is a couple uh, who decided they were going to make their lives a happiness experiment. And so they tried to eliminate as many outside distractions so that they could decide what made them happy. So, for example, they decided they were not going to, do, to uh, have to decide what clothes they were going to wear or how they were going to dress or color or style their hair or anything like that. Both the husband and wife put on what they called a uniform, which they created themselves from clothes from, I think it was Old Navy. Um, they both shaved their heads. Um, it was just an extreme, one of these extreme kind of things. But the interesting thing was, in all their trying to eliminate the distractions to happiness, what they found was that by having fewer choices, they were happier. In other words, we think in this country, it's one of the greatest myths, and I think it's one of the reasons the Amish tend to be happier than most people. We think that having 500 choices of uh, yogurt is a good idea. Actually, each one of those things is a little stressor. Even if we've made a decision, this is my brand, this is what I'm going to use, every other brand is constantly trying to stress you, to coax you away. We have tens of thousands of decisions that we make constantly. And what they found was by limiting their lives, saying, we're not going to change deodorants during our, our test period. We're, not, we're going to eat the same foods. Um, but they didn't eat the same foods every day. What they did was they found that it was stressful to try and figure out what to cook each night. And so they would uh, sit down and plan their meals out on Sunday, go buy all the food, open a bottle of wine, cook everything on Sunday for the upcoming week so they didn't even have to decide what to eat. So that was, that was, a, that was a pretty amazing, amazing story and a great revelation that just by – we have this myth that we need more and more choices when in reality uh, fewer is better. And I, honestly, <laughs> being a minister who has worked with more than his share of brides I really believe that the whole bridezilla phenomenon is because you've got this young woman that for six months to a year has made tens of thousands of decisions, and it just stresses them out. So those are, those are two of my, my really <laughs> favorite stories. And another one that was really great is a man named Ben Conley. Um, ben, at the age of 15, was in a car accident and paralyzed from then on below the neck. And when he realized that he was paralyzed, he basically screamed for days for people to kill him, to end his life. Uh, the hospital sent in a security guard. He begged the security mm -hmm. guard to kill him. And finally he realized he wasn't going to get out of this. He wasn't going to die. He, couldn't even, he didn't even have the capacity to kill himself. 
So what was he going to do if he had to live? And he just chose to be happy. And he used to love to body surf, you know, to go out in the ocean and, and body surf in. And he convinced his brother and his uncle to pull his paralyzed body out into the ocean and release him and let waves carry him in. He did this several times. He got somebody to strap him to the back of a Harley Davidson with an electrical cord and drive him around town, uh, teetering off side to side. <laughs> it's just amazing, and Tom, I think you're a good example of this, that in many ways it's let – me, let, me, let me rephrase that. Rarely, if ever, is it the person who was born with every opportunity who makes any impression of lasting substance on this world. It's the person who is born – a hundred yards behind the goal line or who is born with uh, challenges and deficits who hears that internal voice roar and steps out and, and makes something of their lives. Exactly. I'm thinking of W. Mitchell. He was a former president of the National Speakers Association, uh, burned over 65% of his body, uh, in a motorcycle accident and in a separate plane accident, paralyzed from the waist down. And he has a phrase. He said, before my accident, there were over there was 10,000 things I can do. And he said, now there's only 9,000. And he said, I can focus on the 1,000 I can't do, or I can focus on the 9,000 that I'll never even accomplish all of them. And so you can always focus on things you can do. And I love that thing about fewer choices leading to more happiness. I think marketing people know this because they know if they put out too many varieties of a product, it's hard for people to decide. You're stressing them out. And so marketers know if you just narrow your product choice two or three, easier for people to decide and leads to fewer stress, uh, less stress. And so if you limit your choices in life, and you focus on the things you can do and that you're grateful for, you're going to go a lot further in life than people who just let the negativity of the world impact their thoughts. And those yeah. are amazing stories. I've got to get that guy's name and interview him. What was his name again? Uh, the the uh, construction guy? What was the name? Uh, or are you talking no, about... No, the, the, the last guy with the... You know, I'm so interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because I didn't know yeah. give you the, the end. Of, I didn't give you the end of the story, Tom. This uh, book was actually originally released yeah. as a serial on Kindle. In other words, it was a, it's released now as a book, fifty stories, but it was released over a ten-week period, five stories a week. And on the day that his story was released to Kindle owners, Ben Conley died. And his wife said that she feels like he finally got his message out to the world and that uh, he could lay down his body, which hadn't worked for 40 years. Wow. Wow. That is tragic and yet amazing at the same time. Amazing at the same time. Well, geez. Now, uh, I'm going to have to go get that book. I have your other two, so I'm going to have to get happy stories as well, find out more about Ben uh, Connolly and honor his uh, his memory and his life because uh, uh, that's quite a legacy to leave behind. And so I'm glad you shared that story. Uh, what's uh, coming up for you now? Uh, you, I imagine, uh, are most busy probably in the corporate world, are you? Because this is something that uh, it seems like the business community is 
now understanding and embracing and even pursuing. And uh, so that must be uh, where you spend a lot of your time now, is it? You know, it depends on the time of the year. Uh, my schedule gets very busy speaking um, at certain times of the year. I'm actually doing a lot of uh, principles and schools and things like that, which thrills me. Um, you know, I, I enjoy working with corporations. Corporations are easy. They pay well. Um, and I, I can see an impact on their culture. Um, what I like about schools is that uh, we're then working on future generations. And um, there's actually a school that um, is in the process of trying to reclaim itself from, from being taken over by the state in New Hampshire. And I'm going out there next week. Um, the principal feels that if everyone there can adopt the complaint-free program, and just stop complaining about everything. Just try and look on what's working well, that it could have a big impact on their culture. So we're actually going out there and filming a short documentary. Um, we're going to be um, painting the faculty lounge purple, which they were going to do anyway. But I said, shoot, if you're going to do that, wait till I get there, and I'll bring a camera crew. So we're doing that. And um, nice. so then also I've got a, another book I'm working on. So. And this is sort of a spiritual exploration wow. of the heart. Whereabouts in New Hampshire? Oh gosh, wow. I wish That's I knew. Quite a shift from your focus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, my. Uh, wow. You know, my focus uh, is always, always on a... spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amazing, and uh, I'm sure there, that there's going to be this uh, happy stories may end up being like a chicken soup for the soul series because uh, uh, people need happy stories in their lives, and there's there's many of them out there that many people will never hear of. So your book has the potential to be happy stories, volume one, volume two, volume 784, and uh, I'm hoping it gets to that. Thank you. Happy stories for parents, happy stories for adults, happy stories for disabled people. <laughs> and if, if you have enough of them, eventually my story makes it, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final words from you, uh, Will, before we let you go. Well, I just think that we need to remember that, the, that, that being happy is not selfish. That is one of the misconcepts, mis- uh, biggest misconceptions that people have. The greatest gift you can give somebody else is your own happiness. That is the most magnanimous thing you can do. Everybody wants a, a happy boss, a happy employee, a happy spouse, a happy sister, a happy mother, a happy father, a happy brother. They want happy friends. They want people around them who vibrate at a high level of contentment. And so if you cultivate that for yourself, it's really the best thing you can do for the people in your life as well as your business. Exactly, and and it spreads out from you. If you do that, then you're going to be amazed at how all of a sudden people are more positive, more friendly, more happy around you, and uh, this just creates a a never-ending circle of more happiness and contentment no matter what our circumstances. Thanks so much for your time today, Will. Have yourself an amazing day, and I know I'm going to be reading lots more about happy stories and complaint-free world. Take care. Thanks, Tom. You too.